Now, it's time for the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast with Dean Linke. The National Soccer Coaches Association of America is the go-to resource for soccer coaches of any level. From advocacy, education, and networking, the NSCAA has something for everyone. Join the world's largest soccer coaches organization today. Now, here's our veteran soccer broadcaster, Dean Linke. And oh my, what a week it has been in college soccer and, well, soccer in general, right? I mean, the number one team in the country in undefeated Maryland Terrapins on the men's side saw a 4-1 lead at home go up in smoke against Providence and lose 5-4 to Craig Stewart's Friars. Perhaps one of the biggest upsets and most dramatic college games you will ever hear about. Hello, buddy. I'm Dean Linke, and we start today's show with two people who had a front row seat to that incredible game. Longtime Washington Post soccer writer Steve Goff was there. He saw it. He covered it. He wrote about it, and now he'll talk about it. And because he is on, he might just have an opinion on the firing of U.S. national team coach Jurgen Klinsmann, too. Good stuff from a great, great writer, Steve Goff. And with a seat right on the field, how could we not talk to Providence head coach Craig Stewart? We will relive the thriller through his words, and you will love his interview. Sticking with D1 men's and women's soccer, NSCAA Director of College Programs Rob Kehoe goes inside the numbers as we see who is on their way to San Jose and who is preparing to climb the heights to Houston. With Rob's lead-in, we will push to women's Division I soccer and visit with two of the wonderful stories coming from the Elite Eight women's D1 soccer. Longtime Auburn coach Karen Hoppe has her Tigers in the Elite Eight for the first time ever, and she is on. And legendary Santa Clara coach Jerry Smith is just a win over Georgetown from making the Final Four and playing basically at home in San Jose. How cool would that be? So those are three coaches who want to win a championship in 2016. Now two coaches who won another title this past weekend are also on the show. Steve Clemens won his fifth NJCAA Men's Division I championship at Tyler Junior College as the Apaches went 24-0. And John Ruzan led Paradise Valley to their third NJCAA D1 women's title. And they are both on making us four for four and talking to championship coaches so far on the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast. From there, we push to D2 soccer. The men and women are down to the Final Four. And on the men's side, the tournament has been filled up with upsets all the way through. And we are joined by John Lowry, the head coach of St. Thomas out of Minnesota, who does have a spot in the Final Four for D2 men. On the D3 level, we have talked to every coach in the D3 men's Final Four except UC San Diego's John Pascal. So you knew he had to be on, and he is. And we wrap up with a look at the NAIA. It's a monster good show, but it should be right. It's a monster good time for college soccer. And we start with longtime soccer writer for the Washington Post, Steve Goff, who saw number one Maryland fall to Providence in the second round of the D1 men's tournament. And we talk with the victorious coach of the Friars, Craig Stewart, after this message. The NSCAA is 75 years strong and continues to provide quality service and benefits to soccer coaches. Whether you're a youth, high school, college, or professional coach, the NSCAA works to be a voice for you. Speaking of voice, once again, here's Dean Linky. Okay, so here we go, getting down to the nitty-gritty of what went down in the shocker at College Park as Providence came back from a 4-1 deficit to beat the number one and undefeated Maryland Terrapins 5-4 and knock out the number one seed in the men's D1 tournament. And we do that with Stephen Goff, who has been covering soccer for the Washington Post for 25 years. He's covered live six World Cups for the men, four World Cups for the women. 
He keeps his hand on the pulse of college soccer, too, especially around our nation's capital. And he was there on Sunday, and he is with us now. Steve, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Dean. Great to be with you. Steve, so as a soccer fan and as a longtime soccer writer, with a day or two to think about it, what in the world did you witness on Sunday? I can't remember anything like that, uh, especially with you know so much at stake in a knockout match. It was pretty amazing. Uh, you know, this will go down as one of the great games, college games I've ever seen. I mean, before this, I'll go back to the what was it, the 2012 College Cup semi in Birmingham, and that involved Maryland as well. When Maryland played Georgetown, that was a 4-4 game that was decided on penalties, but that was a back and forth game. Yeah, that was just a wild, fun, free flowing game. This one was just, as you said, it was a 4-1 lead with 20 minutes left and. Everything just suddenly turned, and it, you know, not just tapping goals or penalty kicks. These were extraordinary goals in unusual uh, conditions because of the of the wind, which which clearly affected the match both ways. This one will stand out for quite a while. Well, incredible. And speaking of incredible, the success Sasha Sarovsky's had in Maryland and just uh, for being a true pioneer for college soccer. We talk about it all the time. He was our first guest on the NSCA College Soccer Podcast. Felt like he had to be because he also played such a big role in putting college soccer on television. We talk about him every single week on this program as well because he's out front in the full academic year soccer season. He's such a proud coach, such a proud man, so intense. What was his reaction, Steve? How did that all go down? He was even half an hour, 45 minutes after the game, you could just see it in his eyes and his face. He was just absolutely stunned, gutted. Um, and, he, you know, and he said so. He just he, he couldn't fathom what had just occurred. You know, his team at home with a 15-game winning streak deep into the second half having already scored four goals, but vulnerable. You know, that's the thing about Maryland this year. As good as they were getting results, they lived dangerously. You know, they had nine straight one-goal victories, including several overtime games. They've had to come from behind. There was a feeling that, geez, you know what, Maryland's lead after Providence got that second goal was Hmm, something might be up here. And then it just unraveled quickly. So Sasha said afterward that, you know, he's going to have to reevaluate how he wants his team to present itself next year. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're obviously geared towards the attack and they thought they had both the dangerous attack and the veteran back line and defense to put it all together and win a championship this year. But clearly, you know, there were defensive issues that stood out um, throughout the year and particularly in this match. Yeah, I called a couple of those thrillers, those back-to-back 3-2 overtime wins over the Michigan Wolverines on the Big Ten Network. We talked about them living dangerously, and Sasha had mentioned a couple of times that maybe he wished they would have lost a game. What about the Maryland players? What was their reaction? There were two of them made available, and obviously they were were stunned by it all. They felt good. uh, That second goal, I think, got into their heads a little bit. There was still plenty of time, and then Providence's third goal, which was just a miraculous strike from 25 yards outside of of the foot to the far top corner. I think that, you know, psychologically at that point, it was like, all right, well, here we go. Maryland's, Maryland's in huge trouble now. And, and it, it played out the way, you know, everyone uh, suspected. Meanwhile, Craig Stewart, the Providence coach who is coming up next on this program, 
He must have been shocked as well. What was his reaction when you talked to him? He played it down a bit, you know, saying that the team never gave up, you know, and these are things that coaches and players always say, that they felt they had opportunities to, to score throughout the game and that even though they were down three goals, they, they, they still had a chance. And, and, you know, college soccer is different from the pro level. You know, there's a, there is a greater margin of error, and you can make comebacks. I mean, certainly three-ball comeback late against the top-ranked team is, is not normal by any means, but, you know, things happen, and you see that in college athletics, whether it's college basketball or college football. Seemingly safe leads are, are, are not that, and teams are in position to stage, to stage comebacks, and, and, you know, you saw that here. Okay, Steve, it's not college soccer, but it kind of is when we think about who the next coach is probably going to be, but I can't let you go without talking about Jurgen Klinsmann, his firing, and the future of the U.S. national team. Obviously, you have also covered Bruce Arena forever and probably were around when Virginia was reeling off championships. Then you were there when he was at D.C. United. So he has to be the man, right? Talk about how you're feeling about Mr. Klinsman leaving and Bruce Arena perhaps stepping in. Yeah, I mean, time was up for Klinsman. You know, the breaking point, obviously, were the the back-to-back losses last week. And, you know, it wasn't just that they lost because they were playing two very good teams, but it's the way they lost. The first half against Mexico was a mess. It then looked like they would get out with a draw, and then the defensive confusion led to an easy header late in the game. And then Costa Rica was a fiasco, you know, and there were questions about his tactics, his player decisions, his relationships with players. And, you know, what? the USSF has given him plenty of opportunity. And But, you know, it reaches a point where if a World Cup berth is threatened, is in peril, they have to do something. Because this is, you know, for American soccer, this, the World Cup is far and beyond anything else. It's big, It's so much bigger than, you know, the league or, or college soccer or the women's game. So, you got to get to the World Cup, especially from CONCACAF. And if that's threatened, then you have no choice to make a change. I mean, the financial implications of not making the World Cup is enormous. It's hard to hard to quantify, but I mean, in terms of sponsors and the FIFA money and the publicity and the TV ratings, everything else, you cannot miss the World Cup. And that was becoming a real danger. Sunil, who who loved Klinsman and, and brought him in, felt he had no choice but to make a move. Um, in terms of Bruce, I mean, Bruce is not the long-term solution to uh, American soccer, you know, joining the world elite. But Bruce has been through the qualifying cycle twice before, understands what it takes. He's been to these small countries where it's hard to get results. And he knows the American player pool. That's something people understand. I mean, you can go out and get some famous international coach to coach the U.S. team, but these guys haven't been paying attention to American soccer. Yeah, they don't know anything about what Michael Bradley's doing at Toronto, you know, they they barely know Bobby Wood. They're not aware of what Graham Zussi is doing in Sporting Kansas City. So there's an urgency here. And you need someone who can step in right away where there's no learning curve, who understands the American game, understands the American players, and has been through it before. So in a, so many categories, Bruce Arena uh, meets the USSF's needs. Okay, real quickly as we wrap it up, talk about how you've seen Bruce Arena evolve from his time when you covered him at Virginia when he had those great teams to now when he's the kind of legendary USA coach and LA Galaxy coach. I don't know if it has uh, evolved 
that much. I mean, he's always had a certain bond with players, players that will play for him, play hard with him. Styles will will change at times based on your on your personnel. I mean, certainly at Virginia, he was an expert recruiter, so he could play the way he wanted because of the talent he had brought in. D.C. United got off to a rocky start, but again there, you know, he, he had the players, guys like Echeverria, Moreno, and Pope were elite play, became elite players for this for the league. Galaxy, same thing. I mean, they spent money for him and, and got uh, guys like Beckham, you know, brought back Landon Donovan and Robbie Keane came in. So he worked with his personnel, but, but players believe in him. Players love to, from all indications, players love to play for him. He manages players well. He understands the game, obviously, through, you know, more than 30 years of, of coaching. So, you know, he's a Hall of Fame coach. He's proven that. He's maintained a high level of excellence. And now, you know, he's being brought in as a savior of sorts. You know, the U.S. is in a tight spot, and they need him to, to get this get the ship uh, righted again. Speaking of bond, whether you like it or not, Steve Goff, you and I will always have a bond because we had to translate Bora Militinovich for so many years as well, leading up to the 1994 World Cup. And I've seen you over the years at college soccer games as well. So we'll always have that bond. And thanks for, for being a part of that bond here on the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast. It's been a long, great run with you, Steve Goff. Pleasure having you on the program. My pleasure, Dean. Good work from Steve Goff. He talked to Providence coach Craig Stewart after the win over Maryland. And guess what? We get to talk to him, too. Next on the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast. When you join the National Soccer Coaches Association of America, you join a community who live and breathe the beautiful game just like you do. You join a network of individuals who share many of the same issues, concerns, and questions as you. The NSCAA is dedicated to serving coaches at every level of the game in a number of ways through advocacy, education, and service. Be a part of the coaching community. Learn more and join at NSCAA.com. So Providence beats Maryland 5-4 to four in the second round of the NCAA D1 Men's Tournament, and the Friars head coach is Craig Stewart. Now, if you don't know his story, you should. In just five years, he's done an amazing job. The former product of the Newcastle England United Football Club youth system, and yes, you will love his accent, came over to the States in the early 2000s, played collegially at Franklin Pierce while earning a master's degree. He served as an assistant coach under Shaka Daly at Providence, who's now at Michigan for three years, before taking the top job at Franklin Pierce, where he coached from 2009 to 2011, leading his team to the Final Four before getting the call to take over Providence. Now, in just five seasons, he led the Friars to three NCAA tournament appearances, and who could forget his run in 2014, when Providence won the Big East and made it all the way to the College Cup. Well, just two years later, after a thriller like none other, he has Providence in the Sweet 16, and he joins me now. Coach, great to have you on the program. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So, geez, you've been around the game a long time. Have you ever, ever been a part of a game like the one against Maryland on Sunday in College Park? Yeah, it was a special night, for sure. When you put all the, the, the factors in place, the scoreline at the time, been 4-1 down, the, the opponent down undefeated season and obviously the NCAA an opportunity to be in the NCAA Sweet 16. I think all those factors in together, I'll probably say yeah, so it's, it's, it's certainly up there. So come on, take us to what was going on on the sideline. You know, it's 4-2, then it's 4-3, then it's 4-4. What are you saying on the sideline, coach? Again, obviously we don't have 
timeouts or, or anything like that. And uh, the second half, we obviously had a half-time speech, which I'll have to think about what I said there because we came out in Maryland, fact, fair play to them, they came out flying again and scored two early goals. So I think when the fourth one went in, I kind of looked over Julian Gressel, uh, one of our leaders and captains, was at the halfway line. I was like, you got, you just got to get the group together. And he jogged over, got the group together, and I think they, amongst themselves, just said, listen, we're gonna, we just got to keep going here. So, and then at that point, we just kind of managed the game. We're hoping to just, I think, get the next goal and then see where that would take us. And it kind of had that mentality. So, but again, a lot of credit goes to the boys. Yeah, and these weren't just your everyday garden variety goals either. They were shocking goals as well. I mean, what is it about this team that you kind of maybe even knew, or maybe you didn't know, that they could come back against Maryland in front of the crew, Ludwig Park? I mean, it's hysteria there. Again, I I don't think we knew what the outcome would be. I think the goals themselves, I think obviously the win played a factor in the game. You know, and I think even even the nature of their first goals, Wild hits a, a rocket uh, with a win behind them for the first one, and then the boy Sadic kind of whips one in, and the win catches it, and it, it beats a keeper. So it was a tough night for goalkeepers. And I think even the nature of those goals, you kind of said, listen, it, it's it, this might happen, you know. And I think going in the second half, it was just we got to make sure we capitalise on some of those opportunities. So you know, I think the goals, you know, a couple of the goals had a, you know, again the, the win played a factor in the second half, but the guys obviously took their chances and just found belief in every goal I think so I think that's how the the second half played out. Final goal comes in directly from a corner kick that makes the score 5-4 then the final whistle tell us what did you do after the final whistle coach? Yeah I think that the last eight minutes were you know obviously Marlon we were going to chase it and there was a couple of moments there I remember Wild slips a guy I think at that time Crognail was playing up high as well and so a lot of kind of batting hatches and just kind of defending at that point. But I thought we managed those those minutes quite well and got through it in a good way. So the ball, actually, we had the ball at the end. So I know the bench were excited to, to get up and celebrate. And I think it was obviously important just to, to go over and, and, and embrace with Sash. And obviously uh, disappointing for them that the season uh, ends this way after just a, an unbelievable season for those guys. So that was my priority. And then just even... Looking at some of the Maryland players, you know, a lot of guys there with, you know, even senior careers. So just making sure we, you know, console those guys and then got our group together just to express how proud of our guys we were as well. It was exciting, but I think I, I think at that moment a lot of energy has been exerted in the game. So I think after the game, you're a little calmer. All right. So now I think you can do it, but how do your players come down from that coach and prepare for your game against Creighton on Saturday? Because they got to be still flying high. Yeah, I think coming back, it was a little bit, guys were still a little bit up in the clouds. And obviously coming back on campus, it was a nice response and reaction from everybody on campus. Just everybody very happy for the team and the program. I think having the week obviously helps. Having the week to prepare for an opponent that we know obviously very well from conference play. And I've seen them twice within the last few weeks of the season. So I think we'll, you know, again, we get back going again today and, and start preparing ourselves. And I think the guys will, will find a way to to refocus and be prepared for Saturday. So Craig Stewart, you heard me break down your history to start this interview. Let's first go back just a couple years ago on that magical run in 2014. What came together just two years ago? I think 14's group was a a well-balanced team. I think we had a, a good mix of I think with defensively we were solid and uh, some very good attacking pieces as well and some depth in within that team as well. So I think that year we, we stayed relatively injury-free, which I think helped us down the stretch as well. Maybe up until uh, the final four game where we, we took some knocks going into that one. But I think a lot of things obviously have to go right to get that far in the tournament and we're very aware of that. I think that was just a good group of, again, well-balanced players and 
committed to, to doing the right things and deservedly put themselves in the final four and I thought put a good account of themselves in that semi-final game and obviously disappointed to, to be on the wrong side of that result but obviously a great season for the, for the programme. And further back, what came together that made you say you wanted to come over to the States in the early 2000s, get your Masters and get involved in the college game? Went to university back home in England. So when I finished up at university, it was just uh, an opportunity to come out and, and, and try something different. Probably going to be short term with the, the intention to go back home and play a coach or whatever path it took. But when I came over here, I got approached to kind of say I'd be interested in continuing to play and go back into the university setup and play, which was seemed appealing at the time. Uh, I didn't know much about the college, so I got kind of landscape so I had the opportunity to go back and do a master's program uh, over Franklin Pierce. I met with the, the coach up there, he was one of the first pe- people I met, Marco Kuhlman, who to be honest I think he was the reason why I did it. I, I just had a really good rapport with him as a coach and still think he's one of the, the best coaches in the in this country and he kind of just sold me on what he wanted to do and it was basically to win a national title and I was excited for that opportunity so again that combined with Continue my education and get a master's was, was something that I couldn't really turn down. So that kept me here for two years and then I kind of fell into the coaching side because of that and I uh, had done some coaching previously back home but really got myself going involved with the kind of club soccer and then pushed on from there. And one way or another, Shaka Daly will also always be tied to your success. You went to Providence as an assistant coach before going back to your alma mater, Franklin Pierce, and then you return when Shaka Daly decides to try Big Ten and Michigan. Talk about that whole sequence, Coach. I spent a year at Northeastern and then Shaka uh, had approached me to see if I wanted to come down uh, be part of his staff at Providence and again I learned so much stuff from not only coaches I played for but certainly coaches that I worked with so Brian Ainscoff was at Northeastern at the time and then Shaka Daly here for, for three years again just picked up a lot of stuff you know in terms of coaching the college landscape again and, and really program management I took a lot away from the way Shaka ran his program and again I think still one of the, the top coaches in the country as well so that was a great experience but I did feel I had to go out and do my own thing as well so I had the opportunity to go back to Franklin P.S. and coach my alma mater which I think is special as well I don't think you get many opportunities to do that so that was I think a, a great experience being a, a younger coach but a very much a hands-on experience and thoroughly enjoyed that as well so and then obviously when the, the position opened up at Providence for me it was a, a you know a, a no-brainer and a, a, a real exciting opportunity for me to come back here. All right coach to wrap it with the thriller over Maryland behind you and I gotta admit I'm hoping that you watch some of the games that I called on the Big Ten Network because I did five Maryland games which makes it even more surprising that they lost because they look like a team that could beat some semi-professional teams as well but with that behind you what does Providence have to do right to get to Houston and another College Cup run of course, you did it just a few years ago. A little bit coach's cliche, but we're just really thinking about the next game and the opportunity to go back out to Creighton. Again, we've seen them twice at the back end of the season. Once when we, we went out there and, and had a tight game, 1-1-0. And then we played them in the big semi-final here where they ended up winning 2-1 So in another tight game. So I think it's, again, a ton of respect for their program, coaching staff, and I think they're a quality opponent. So I think it's a, a great matchup and we're excited for that. It's we call it the rubber match, so I think we've got to uh, make sure we're on the right side of, of this result. All right, Coach, the NSCAA was not going to let me keep doing this podcast if we didn't have you on after one of the most thrilling games in the history of college soccer. So proud that you were part of it and so proud that you're on the program. Thanks for giving us some time. Good luck against Creighton. Good luck the rest of the way, and 
Congrats again on that thrilling win over Maryland. Thanks very much. The 2017 NSCAA convention will be unlike any before. Taking over the downtown Los Angeles Convention Center January 11th through 15th. Network with over 11,000 peers at one of the education sessions, the extensive exhibit hall, or one of many social functions, including the college coaches reception and the All-American Luncheon. With more space and unique experiences, you won't want to miss out on the largest gathering of soccer coaches and administrators in the world. Register today at NSCAA.com. Welcome back to the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast. What a great way to kick off Steve Goff, the longtime writer for the Washington Post. He was at College Park when Maryland fell to Providence. And how about the head coach of the Friars, Craig Stewart? As promised, we're going to talk more D1 men's and women's soccer with Rob Kehoe, the director of college programs for the NSCAA. Rob, thanks for being with us. Good to be with you again, Dean. Exciting time of the year. Oh, my goodness. And, Rob, for college soccer, there's nothing like this time in the season when all divisions are playing for national titles after dueling through their regular season competitions and conference tournaments. And now for the Division One teams, we're well down the road to see who's on their way to San Jose on the women's side. And for the men, what teams are taking strides to, quote, climb to the heights in Houston? As you've been following the tournaments, what have been the things that have stood out for you, Rob? Well, Dean, there are many things that stand out, but most fundamentally, and this is common in almost all high-level competition situations, is that the tournaments have proved to be a matter of the heart. And by that, I mean that games produce heart-throbbing, heart-rising, heart-throbbing, and sometimes even heart-shocking responses to the action And as high as the heart rises in elevation and celebration and victory, it's also contrasted by the depth of disappointment and dejection that the heart descends to in defeat, and certainly we've seen that in the tournament. Well, tell us a little bit about some of your matters of the heart perceptions from the Division I tournaments, Rob. Well, undoubtedly, the first is a heart shocker that made it to SportsCenter, and that being the almost beyond belief providence come from behind from 1-4 in the 70th minute to be at 5-4 in the 83rd minute and leave number one ranked and previously undefeated Maryland's Ludwig Field with a victory. And on the women's side, at number one West Virginia, there was also a high-level heart activity and drama as the Mountaineers, who outshot their two opponents over the weekend, 51-11, to advanced by the slimmest of margins, winning 1-0 in double overtime against Ohio State, and then against UCLA, they're winning 1-0 into the 89th minute. UCLA scores to tie the game. They go through the two overtime periods and then have to advance by winning 4-2 in the penalty kicks. So that's a lot of excitement. And also on the men's side, a couple of other games are of note, and that's because some teams who are certainly considered underdogs were within striking distance of pulling off significant upsets only to see their leads disappear in the waning moments of regulation time. And then, as happens in competition, they experience the dagger of the game winner by the opponents in overtime. And the three I refer to here are Vermont. They were at Virginia. They were leading the game 1-0 into the 76th minute, gets scored on, and then they lose at 102-53 in the overtime. South Carolina at Clemson, and you know what kind of a duel that is on a consistent basis. They were up 1-0 in the 86th minute. Clemson ties it at in the 86th and then wins in overtime. Then Florida Gulf Coast had UNC on the ropes at 2-1. UNC scores in the 86th minute and then gets a game winner in the 106th. 
And, of course, from the dejection and disappointment that Vermont, South Carolina, and Florida Gulf Coast experienced, you certainly had the elevation and celebration in the heart for Virginia, Clemson, and North Carolina, who survived to play another day. In addition to the matters of the heart, are there other observations, Rob, that caught your attention as you followed the action and looked at the details of games? Yeah, there are a couple themes that come to mind. The most prominent is efficiency, and that relates to the thought that when the demand is high and the stakes are very high also, the margin for error is typically slim and efficiency is very important. And over a weekend, there are a number of demonstrations of this theme. And the first is Creighton. Creighton that started uh, the tournament out at home, then they advanced to play at Kentucky. They had six shots in the game at Kentucky and scored on three of them to win three to two. And now they get to return home to host Providence in round three. On the women's side, Georgetown, that's had a terrific season, played Virginia for the second time. And they get three shots in this game against Virginia. They score on two of them to win 2-0. And you may remember they played Virginia on September 11th. In that game, they had six shots, scored on three of them after going down 2-0 in the first nine minutes and were winning 3-2 in the 38th minute. And they got the game winner in that contest on a free kick by Rachel Corbeau's. And she also scored on a free kick in this game against Virginia. So they advanced to play at home against Santa Clara. Another on the women's side is Auburn. Auburn is 17-6-0, and they're on a mini roll. They beat South Alabama 4-0 in the first round. Then they beat Connecticut 4-1 in the second round. And they were about even on shots, 12 for Auburn, 10 for UConn. And they score on four of their goals. UConn scores one, and then they win at Florida, scoring on three of their seven shots compared to Florida scoring on one of 16. And perhaps one of the most surprising is SIU Edwardsville, the Cougars on the men's side. And I can't say if this is efficiency or just down-to-earth grinding, which they seem to be accustomed to doing, having started the season at 1-4-2, and two, and they're now 10-4-7, and seven, going 9-0-5 oh, in their last 14 games. 18 of their games have been decided by a goal or less, and they've played nine overtimes. SIU last weekend is outshot 22-5 to by Butler, holds Butler to a 0-0 score through the two overtimes, then advances 5-4 to on penalty kicks. Prior to that, they played Michigan State. Michigan State outshot them 19-9. to They each scored 1-1 to through the overtimes, and then they went... <laughs> nine to eight on penalty kicks. It also might be something to consider that the SIU women, they also advanced in the second round of the NCAA tournament when they beat Notre Dame five to four on penalty kicks. So penalty kicks might be the specialty at SIU Edwardsville. But they have to face Wake Forest in Winston-Salem this coming weekend. So we'll see in that game if their grinding continues to produce. I know there are so many stories to tell, but if you were to pick two for this year's tournament, what would they be, Rob? Well, as you said, Dean, there are many stories, but I have two that relate to teams that I've followed the whole year. And one is still on the way to San Jose and actually doesn't have far to go to get there. And the other is still trekking with the intent to climb to the heights in Houston. The first is Santa Clara women's team that started the year at 2-4-3, and three, with Jerry Smith having scheduled out of the gate five games against Pac-12 teams, 
two against Big Ten teams, and then he had one from the ACC, Notre Dame, and then another from the Big East, Marquette. And then I remember uh, thinking about this, what is Jerry doing with this kind of a schedule? But I think he certainly knew what he was doing. He was toughing his team up so that they would be prepared for the the tough tournament. And certainly they proved to do that. They're at 12-6-4 now, but 18 of their games have been decided by a goal or less. They've played nine overtime games, and they've gone 5-0-4 in those games. Looking at what they've accomplished on their way to San Jose last weekend, they were outshot by Stanford 31-7, to and they got 14 saves from their sophomore goalkeeper, Melissa Lauder, and they produced the game winner at 107-54. And then on Sunday in the round of 16, again being outshot 18-7 to by North Carolina State, they put three of those shots in the goal, with Lauder again making six important saves for a 3-0 shutout. So they're still on the way to San Jose. The second is Denver on the men's side, and I know recently you had Jamie Franks on the podcast and they're sitting at 18-0-3 this season, which follows their 15-1-3 season last year, with their own loss being exactly one year ago today, where they lost 2-1 to to SMU in the tournament. Like Santa Clara, the margin for Denver has been slim this season, as 15 of their 21 games have been decided by a goal or less. And this, with the strength of schedule rating at 123 out of 206 Division I teams. Jamie has certainly done a very, very good job with this team and his sights set on proving their qualities against the best. And this weekend, they're really going to have that opportunity to just prove that against Washington, who put a thumping on New Mexico last Sunday in a 4-1 to victory. So you look at these two stories, and they've been interesting all year. And they're both still on the roads to the College Cup. Okay, as the journeys to the College Cups continue, and I know you will be at both for this coming weekend, if you had your pick of games and a jet at your disposal, how would you set up your itinerary? Well, I'd do it kind of like Kirk Herbstreet, your fellow from Ohio State who now does all the uh, college football games. And here's how I'd do it. Friday... I'd want to be at the graveyard in Columbia, South Carolina, for what I would call the Carolina combat between South Carolina and North Carolina women. And then from there, I'd want to get Saturday at noon inside the Beltline in D.C. for the duel of the Jesuits, where you have the Georgetown women taking on Santa Clara, who comes all the way across the country for that duel. And then I would want to get to on the wings of Counting Crows to Omaha to see Creighton play Providence Saturday night and then complete the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday Triple Crown in Derby Land to see Louisville and Notre Dame. That would be my itinerary for the weekend. Wow, what a great itinerary, Rob. And if they had a jump seat, hopefully you'd let me on board as well. Speaking of big games, I'll be calling the Indiana-Virginia Tech men's game Sunday, 12 noon Eastern on the Big Ten Network. Rob, and I hope you'll be watching. Absolutely. Looking forward to it, Dean. And always, best wishes for a terrific call on that game. The NSCAA is 75 years strong and continues to provide quality service and benefits to soccer coaches. Whether you're a youth, high school, college, or professional coach, the NSCAA works to be a voice for you. Speaking of voice, once again, here's Dean Linke. Thanks to NSCAA Director of College Programs Rob Kehoe for breaking down the numbers of the D1 men's and women's NCAA tournaments. And thanks to Washington Post writer Steve Goff and Providence men's coach Craig Stewart. 
for taking us inside that thriller over Maryland on the men's side. Now we push to D1 women where we are down to eight, the Elite Eight. And coming up this weekend, we have these four matchups with the winners going to the College Cup in San Jose. On Friday night, it's a battle of the Carolinas as Anson Dorrance's North Carolina Tar Heels take on Shelly Smith in South Carolina. Those two coaches have been on the program. Robbie Church and the Duke Blue Devils travel to Morgantown to take on the number one West Virginia Mountaineers and Nikki Izzo-Brown. Of course, Nikki's been on the program. On the other side, Santa Clara will travel to Georgetown for a chance to return back home in the College Cup in San Jose. And in a few minutes, we'll have Jerry Smith and USC will face Auburn led by Karen Hoppe as the Tigers reach the Elite Eight for the first time in program history with a 3-1 victory at number 9 Florida on Sunday afternoon. Now Karen Hoppe is one of only 10 female women's soccer head coaches ever to eclipse 200 wins and she's had 13 10 plus win seasons in 17 years made 13 NCAA tournament appearances including 9 of the last 10 campaigns. Now she reached the Sweet 16 for the first time in program history last year and she's already won up that now, making it to the Elite Eight, and she joins me now. Karen, thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks, Dean, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So got to know you a little bit several years ago when Auburn played Georgia on the Fox Soccer Game of the Week, and you had a player, I believe, that scored a bomb on national TV. I'm getting a little older. I can't remember every single digit. Can you remember that goal and that player? I think it was Katie Frierson, right? Okay, there it was. Yeah, what a shot, right? Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, it was a bomb. You know, Katie was, I think, pretty young then, and just hit a long-range bomb. She was a great goal scorer and played professional in NWSL for a long time until she just stepped down last year to have a baby. All right, that was awesome. Speaking of awesome, your Tigers are in the Elite Eight. You beat Florida to get here. Talk to me about this run, Coach. You know, our team's playing really well at the right time. We've got a really talented team. We we had a great regular season, finished second in the in the SEC. So, you know, we knew we were capable and and I think we were really disappointed losing in the semifinals of the SEC tournament. And you could just see our team mentally get really focused and say, you know, we're not doing that again. And, and they've had some great weeks of practice and it's carried over into the games. And we're really playing well right now on both sides of the ball. So USC is next, a very explosive team. Are your women ready for the challenge? And what kind of challenges does USC pose? Really ironic because we played them in the regular season. Um, and that's not obviously an opponent we play every year. So we played them at our place. We lost 2-0, um, and we felt we felt we could have played a lot better than we did in that game. And you know, obviously, it was a long time ago, so both teams are are a little bit different. But at least we're we're familiar um, with them, and they are loaded for sure. They've got they've got tons of talent, um, and they play really good soccer. Um, but we've we've played a lot of good teams during the course of the year, and I think you know we're gonna have to be on point defensively. And I think. Um, you know, our offense has got to continue playing the way it has, um, and I think it's going to be a great matchup. Now, you came to Auburn in 1999 after six years at Central Florida, and I love talking about Central Florida because I love the fact that they've made a concentrated effort to hire a woman as their coach, right? They had you, they had Amanda yeah. Cromwell, they had Tiffany roberts Sahadic. What did Central Florida do? How did they help you prepare for your run at Auburn? You know, they, they took a chance on me when I was really young. Um, I played there, and I graduated, and I was the – right after I graduated, I was the assistant coach for two years um, at a time when most programs didn't even have a full-time assistant coach, and I was not full-time. I was part-time. And then they were going through a coaching change, and they thought they were going to have some interim coaches turn full-time, and they didn't. And then they it came summer, and they didn't have – a women's coach, women's soccer coach, a men's basketball coach, or an AD. They were going through all those hires in the summer. So 
Um, they took a chance on me. Steve Sloan was the AD. I was 23 years old with two years of college assistant experience. That was it. And um, they took a chance on me to be an interim coach, and, and we did all right, and they hired me full-time. So it, that program means a lot to me because they gave me a chance at a time when you know, wasn't even sure coaching was a, a viable profession for a female at that time and um, laid the foundation of my coaching. And six years later, I got the job at Auburn, and I've been really blessed to be at two great places. Well, I love that story, and that means you also know the importance of helping other coaches make their way. And here you take on Southern Cal, and they've got a coach that coached under you from 2006 <laughs> to 2011. Kanani he was he's the head coach at SC, and he was my assistant for six years here. He was at Birmingham Southern, and Birmingham Southern president made a decision to go from D1 back down to D3, and then shortly thereafter, I lost an assistant. So it was perfect timing for me. He came over from being the head coach there to being my assistant, and we had six great years together. All six years we were in the NCAA tournament. Um, in his final year, we won the SEC championship, and um, after that season, he was hired at Washington State. Spent two years, did a great job there, and then got the job at SC. But um, I don't think you could write a better script for a, an Elite Eight game having – Two coaches that used to work together playing each other for uh, their each of their first birth in the in the college cup. Well, that'll be fantastic. And as we all know, to make a deep run, you need special players to play at a special rate. And Kristen Dotson has done that for you all season. Mm-hmm. What makes her so special? You know, Kristen's just had a breakout junior year. She's been unbelievable, and and we always knew she was capable. Last year, she was coming off an ACL and playing a brace all year. wasn't even cleared opening weekend last year and then finally was cleared and, and was good enough to start for us, even though she hadn't played in so long. So this year, she's just you know physically 100% back and, and had a phenomenal year. She's really dangerous on the dribble. She's quick. She's deceptive. She can create goals. She can obviously score goals. But the other thing that makes Kristen really special is she puts the work in defensively. And, you know, a lot of times you'll have that forward up top that doesn't really want to work defensively, and that Chris is the opposite of that. I mean, she's one of our best 1v1 defenders, um, to be honest, and she'll put pressure on backs, and that allows the rest of our team to step up and press. And, and um, even Chris may not win all the balls, but she'll force a ball into um, that our midfield can pick off and win and, and go forward. So she puts the work in. She's earned it with her work rate. Certainly, Karen, you've been blazing trails for female coaches in the Division One game. It's getting better for sure, but what do you think about the progress right now as far as more women getting top jobs at the D1 level? It's something that I think is still developing, and it's yeah, it's hard to believe. I'm I'm among the older generation of female coaches. There's a few older than me, but it's certainly been slower than I thought it would be at this point. And I think, you know, it's one of those things that we need to continue to try and focus on and develop and and encourage our players to coach. You know, it's it's always great when you see the players coach and they get a taste of that and and can enjoy it. And and the the great thing is we've got some phenomenal female coaches in this Elite Eight round. You know, you look at Nikki, Nikki Ezra Brown, been doing it forever and, and um, you know, a tremendous female coach and Shelly Smith. So there's some great female coaches that are role models and we just need to keep developing them because there's certainly a lot of great young coaches coming through the pipes as well. And Karen, for sure, the NSCAA has been amazing, very vocal in supporting female coaches at every level, every single level. And we'll see more of that at L.A. as part of the convention as well. No doubt about it. The NSCA has been such a massive supporter of female coaches that I love the way they've embraced females coaching our female 
soccer players. They, they've been tremendous. And I think I'm past 25 years now as a member, by the way, of the NSCA. So they've been an important part of my career as well. And what we learned at the convention and their coaching schools and all those things are really, they do a great job of catering to the females. Finally, Karen, circling back to why we're here, first ever time in the Elite Eight. You've got Southern Cal coming up for a chance at the College Cup and a trip to San Jose. The Auburn Tigers will make their first appearance in the College Cup if they do what? <laughs> um, you know, we've, we're really just focusing on playing our best game. One of the things we've done all year is try to get better from game to game. And, you know, we finished the Florida game and, and we felt – you know, we didn't play our best throughout that entire game. And so, you know, our focus is to get better from the Florida game. We need to be a better team on Friday than we were this past Sunday. And um, we've got to play both sides of the ball. You know, it's going to be a great matchup. Karen Hoppe, true pleasure to reconnect. So enjoyed that game on Fox Soccer. Congratulations on all your success. You are rolling right now. Good luck against Southern Cal and hope to see you in San Jose. All right. Thank you so much. Speaking of San Jose, how cool would it be if the Santa Clara Broncos could also make it to the College Cup 500 yards away from their campus? That would be amazing. We'll talk to Jerry Smith about it when we come back. By being a member of the NSCAA, you are a part of the world's largest network of soccer coaches. Here, you can find like-minded people passionate about bettering themselves to help better their players and ultimately to better the game. Great to spend time with Karen Hoppe, the head coach of Auburn, who has her team in the Elite Eight for the first time ever. A man so familiar to the Elite Eight and making deep runs, although he just told me before we went on it's the first time Santa Clara's been in the Elite Eight in 10 years, talking about Jerry Smith. I call him Dr. Jerry Smith because the man looks like a doctor. 30 years as the top man for the Broncos. An honor to be with you, Jerry. Thanks for being on the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast. Uh, Dean, great to be with you. And, um, you know, my 30 years, people call me doctor only because I have a gray hair and glasses I can't see anymore, so I look like a doctor. But uh, happy to be with you. All right. Well, pleasure to be with you. And of course, last weekend, a huge weekend because you take on your rival Stanford and a thriller with the late gold and you knock off NC State. Let's start with that Stanford game because it's never easy to beat the Cardinal. You know, Paul Ratcliffe and his staff do an amazing job and they have a, a lot of talented uh, players on their team. And that uh, was a great win for, for, for Santa Clara. There's no question. Uh, you know, Santa Clara and Stanford rivalries go back quite a while. You know, we had their number for a very long time, and they couldn't get past us in the NCAA tournament and for many years. And then the last several years, we haven't been able to get past them in the NCAA tournament. So um, it's gone back and forth. I think the overall record, uh, Santa Clara has more wins than not against Stanford. But as I said, lately they've had our number in the tournament. I think what helped us is we beat them last year, uh, we beat them last year in the regular season, and, uh, you know, I think it's important for, you know, the current players or, you know, to know that it, it's possible. You know, sometimes when you don't win in three or four matches, it gets in your head, and uh, it was in our head. And uh, the win last year, I thought, really went a long way toward giving our team some additional confidence as we went into that Stanford game this year. Coach, one thing that's got to be in your head, all your players' heads, and I know with Coach Speak you're probably going to tell me differently, but, hey, the College Cup is in San Jose, but you got a big test before you get to San Jose, just down the road. you got to come all the way across the country to take on Dave Nolan's Georgetown Hoyas. 
but you got to be thinking a little bit about what the reward is if you win it. How do you balance that whole mess? Yeah, you know, I think it serves as additional motivation for us. You know, it's a, you know, you, you really don't need a whole lot of additional motivation uh, when you're playing for a chance to play in the College Cup, no matter where it is, uh, for sure. You know, we want to play well for our university and for our alums and 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 for ourselves. And uh, but knowing that um, the, the College Cup is, is right here in our backyard. And, and honestly, Dean, it, it's actually 500 yards from our campus. <laughs> Santa Clara, we're right on the Santa Clara-San Jose border, and so is Avaya Stadium where the San Jose Earthquakes play. So uh, as a crow flies, it's 500 yards from our field. So it's literally next door to us. And uh, it's a beautiful stadium, and all of our players have watched wonderful matches in that stadium and uh, when it was moved to Avaya Stadium you know we certainly dreamed about what was possible uh, at that time a couple of months ago and uh, here we are one game away from a chance to 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 be in that in, in that college cup and, and we've been in this position a couple times before in 1996 Santa Clara hosted the college cup on our campus and we had to go to UConn uh, in in a, in a frozen game uh, and beat the UConn Huskies, who were ranked number one in 1996, uh, to get to the College Cup on our own campus. And then in 1999, it was at Spartan Stadium in San Jose, and um, we advanced to that College Cup as well. So um, Georgetown is a tough team, and Davey's a great coach, and uh, we've got a tough task. But should we get past them, you know, that'll be a chance to go three for three college cups in our backyard. Well, that would be phenomenal. I'm glad you shared that history because in 99, when you played Notre Dame in the semifinals, there was almost 20,000 people there. I think still the largest attendance for a college cup game. And so everybody would love to see you in this one, Coach. Yeah, we've got a great fan base here in the San Jose area, in the Silicon Valley. And, um, you know, they came out in droves for the for – the, uh, we sold out in 96 here – um, and we nearly sold out um, 20,000 seats in 99. And, um, you know, should we – I think it's going to be a well-attended College Cup, whether Santa Clara is in it or not. But certainly there will be a lot of uh, – a whole lot of local interest uh, should we advance to that game and uh, fill up that stadium would be um, certainly something we'd love to contribute to. Well, we talked about the 30 years. You had that run where you were in the Elite Eight, the College Cup, so many years in a row. And I like the fact that you kind of you know, opened up and said, hey, 10 years has been too long for us to not be in this position. But I appreciate it because even Anson Dorrance, with all his success, has said he's had to change a little bit because the game has changed. Have you had to do the same thing, Coach? You know, I think for us, you know, we had a string of about 15 years in a row where we went to the Elite Eight. I don't think our coaching has changed. Uh, but the recruiting game has changed drastically yep. since that time. And, and really the landscape of college athletics has changed a lot, uh, you know, given power co- five conferences and kind of the money that they have and television networks that they have. So the recruiting game has changed quite a bit. And, and quite honestly, our program uh, was really lagging behind in recruiting efforts. Um, and um, I think that's had a big impact on us. You know, college sports, there's a lot of variables, um, student leadership, you know, uh, coaching, uh, recruiting, um, you know, th- there's a lot of things, motivating your kids, there's a lot of factors, but recruiting is a big part of it. And, and quite honestly, we've just fallen behind in our recruiting uh, until recently. Uh, we have a fantastic group of players here, 
um, and uh, we've really kind of got that back on track again. And so we 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 feel very very confident about uh, our ability to play in the Elite Eight and beyond going forward. But it's taken us a little while to get back here. I, we we almost got there three years ago. We actually played at Virginia Tech. We were one of the 16 seeded teams, as was Virginia Tech, but they were higher seeds, so we went there. We lost in penalty kicks to Virginia Tech, and they went on to play in the in the College Cup, where they I, I believe they lost a close game to Florida State, and Florida State went on to win it. So we were pretty close three years ago with Julie Johnston and Sophia Huerta and Morgan Marlborough. That great team uh, wasn't able to get over the hump, and this year's team has, and uh, we're very proud of them. So great to be hearing the voice of Jerry Smith, who's in the Elite Eight, will take on Georgetown. And I love your answer. The coaching hasn't changed. Another thing that hasn't changed is your emphasis on leadership. You've done amazing work in leadership. In fact, you've got an incredible academy or institution, or you explain it to me because I want people to know about it. Most people do, but uh, a lot of people listening to this. Coach, tell us all about it, please. Well, thanks for bringing that up, Dean. That's um, I'm very honored that Santa Clara University started an academy here at the university, which is called the Jerry Smith Coaching for Life Academy. And uh, certainly leadership is one of the core pillars that we talk about in the uh, Coaching for Life Academy. Uh, But really, it's just about the emphasis on teaching life skills through sports. And, And certainly, I'm not the first person to talk about that and you know I will never uh, come close to some of the great coaches in college sports that have done an outstanding job before me in emphasizing those things but it is something that's very important to me and it always has been and um, you know whether it's um, whether it's uh, grit or resiliency or um, leadership or communication or growth mindset you know these things are really the more important things that we're hoping to teach the young people that work in our programs, uh, soccer is going to come to an end for everybody at some point. And uh, wherever that happens for each um, player or each coach, we want that experience of playing in a sports team to have helped hone those life skills so that in their next phase of life, they will be more prepared for success going forward. And uh, we emphasize that with our players, um, and I think our, it, it, it helps us in two ways. It actually helps us do what we're doing now, and more importantly to us, and honestly, more importantly to us, it really sets these players on a path of success after they leave Santa Clara because they have the right kind of tools and skill sets to be successful uh, after college. And, and, that's, and that's really what the Coaching for Life Academy uh, is all about. Another person sharing that same message, that same vision, and particularly opening doors for young women is Brandy Chastain, your wife of how many years now, Coach? 20 years. We had the big 10, 20, 30. Our, our youngest turned 10. Uh, Brandy and I turned 20, and then I turned 30 here at Santa Clara University. So uh, Brandy and I are 20 years married now. Well, incredible. And she shares that same vision. I mean, you got to be so proud of uh, what she's done, particularly opening doors for young girls. You know, Brandy is uh, one of the most impressive people that uh, I've ever been around. And it's, it's kind of funny to say that uh, since we're married. You know, it's important to step back and realize what people have done. You know, and Brandy has just been uh, cutting edge uh, for so long, and she's opened new doors. Uh, you know, she 
uh, played in the first World Cup. She played in the first Olympics. She's done so many firsts, and her willingness to, I think her courage, her bravery, her confidence, her willingness to kind of meet challenges head on. You know, we talk about growth mindset in the Coaching for Life Academy. I'm not sure I've met anybody that has a better growth mindset than Brandy. And, and, and I really mean that. It doesn't matter if it's learning a new language, scoring the winning goal in the World Cup final, or connecting with a, a young girl in a very kind of unique and genuine way. Brandy's unafraid, and uh, I really admire her for that. I admire her courage. I admire her toughness. And um, I have to remind our team every once in a while, like we get to the NCAA tournament, you talk about, well, the, the match could go to penalty kicks. And then, of course, you know, we, we, were, we don't look at the obvious, like Brandy's probably the most famous person um, alive when it comes to uh, managing a penalty kick situation. You know, I love that story of 99. Brandy wasn't in the five penalty kickers. Uh, Michelle Akers was, and Michelle Akers went out of the World Cup final with um, with heat exhaustion. And um, Lauren Gregg and Tony DeChico asked Brandy to take the fifth penalty kick. But since she had had one saved earlier that year in the Algarve Cup against China, uh, they asked her to take it left-footed since she had taken the other one right-footed. And uh, I guarantee you I don't have that courage. World Cup final, take one with my weaker foot, for the first time I'm in my life in that moment. And, of course, Brandy doesn't hesitate and just hits it rock solid. You know, that's tremendous courage. Um, and uh, I admire her for that. And uh, I have to remind our team, you know, and myself, quite honestly, of, of who we are lucky to have in our program and around us every day. Hey, man, I never get tired of hearing that story. And it never stops me from getting chills as I'm so proud of the history of U.S. soccer and Brandy's role and your role. All right, coming full circle to wrap it up, though, you will be in Avaya Stadium if you do what against Georgetown? You know what? I think a very disciplined, focused effort at following a narrow game plan. Um, you know, I think, and that's been one of our secrets to success, the game plan that we had to have against Long Beach State and then against Stanford and then against NC State, all three were different. And uh, credit to our players, they've been disciplined and focused at following a very specific game plan. You know, there were times uh, in our day, in our heyday, where honestly we, we let teams worry about us because we just we could go out and just dominate them. Um, like the 99 team, we scored 110 goals and allowed eight, you know. So, you know, but nowadays there's so much parity. You know, you have to game plan well and the kids have to be focused. Uh, you know, Georgetown is a very, has a very quick counterattack. They're very good on dead balls. They're an extremely hardworking team. They're a deep team. Um, and I think we're going to have to find ways to break them down by moving the ball quickly and then transitioning quickly to, to defending when we do turn it over. And I think we'll have to be tough on dead balls because uh, they're very good in those areas. And in 30 seconds or less, you are grateful to the NSCAA because? I'm grateful to the NSCAA for a million different reasons, but I love the camaraderie that I have with the other coaches. I love the platforms to connect with other coaches. I love being on the academy staff. And, and by the way, when we 
you know, when our staff runs um, the courses, we, we learn as much uh, as the candidates do, and I love that. I love staying in contact with uh, coaches through NSCA platforms, uh, through social media and otherwise. Um, but I, I, I'd have to say I certainly love learning. I'm, I'm a lifelong learner. That That is for sure, you know, so I, I have to mention that. But I really just love connecting with the other coaches and, uh, you know, feeling the camaraderie of, of being around other NSCA members. And, uh, um, you know, I think those are some of the things that I'm grateful for and thankful for during this Thanksgiving week. Speaking of learning, where can people find out more about your academy, Coach? Uh, scu.edu is the, is the university's website, scu.edu, and then uh, um, forward slash coaching for life. And uh, you can learn all about the Coaching for Life Academy there. Our director, Danielle Slayton, one of our former players, a legend in her own right, she's the director and uh, she's fantastic. She deserves a lot more of the credit than I do for what we do in the Coaching for Life Academy, and I'm also thankful for that. I called Danielle's games when she won a WSA championship with the Carolina Courage. I've called games with Danielle. Love her. Also love Santa Clara and love, of course, Jerry Smith, Brandy Chastain. Honored to talk to you, Coach. Good luck against Georgetown, and thanks for spending so much time with us on the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast. Thanks, Dean. Great to be with you. Go Broncos. When you join the National Soccer Coaches Association of America, you join a community who live and breathe the beautiful game just like you do. You join a network of individuals who share many of the same issues, concerns, and questions as you. The NSCAA is dedicated to serving coaches at every level of the game in a number of ways through advocacy, education, and service. Be a part of the coaching community. Learn more and join at NSCAA.com. So the very fun and entertaining Steve Clemens becomes just our second repeat coach guest, joining Richland's Sean Worley, who was on last week celebrating his D3 junior college title. Steve Clemens, undefeated, 24-0, a powerhouse team, and your fifth NJCAA title at Tyler. You also won some at Meridian as well. Steve, it just doesn't get old, does it? No, it, it, it doesn't, uh, Dean. It really doesn't. It's, uh, it, was a, it was a great year, and it was a, a fun time for sure. Now, what's the secret to this team? Tell us experience, defense, offense, international. What do you got, Coach? Well, you know, we're kind of balanced. You know, we're about half and half international in America. We're, uh, you know, our defense allowed nine goals on the season, our Attack uh, scored a bunch. I was, in fact, I was asking uh, somebody yesterday how many we had scored. I never got that answer yet, but uh, I don't know what it was, but it was a lot to a little, you know, this season. And then, um, you know, it's about 18 freshmen on that roster, so it's a uh, it's a good future as well. It was just a really good group thing that came together, and um, you know, again, you can't, you know, you don't have a lot of control over that. There, and the, and they came together. And uh, and they were low maintenance, like a lot of teams that are good are. You know, they just didn't. You know, they 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 were very focused. How do you keep reloading every year? It must be a special place in Tyler. Well, you know, we'd like to think so, Dean. I mean, our 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 players have been, um, you know, uh, seemingly pretty happy through the years. You know, we really just have almost no turnover as far as you know player departures, whatever, anything like that. And you know, one of the best things and most fun things is just the. The, uh, the all the old players, you know, helping us, then, then the, you know, new players. And uh, just between that and just, uh, you know, their friends and, 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 uh, and, of course, a lot of coaches helping us as well. You know, there's a lot of eyes out here that kind of help Tyler, Judy Tyler, and we 
hope that we're the kind of place you know you'd want uh, your son to play. Well, you mentioned coaches and former players helping you. Now you're going to help other coaches because your job's not done. One of the things that you love doing is placing your kids at a higher level. So now that process starts. I can only imagine how many D1 coaches were there, probably too many to list. But that's an exciting part of the process, Steve. Do you enjoy that part? Uh, absolutely. You know, it, uh, you know it, it starts now. You know, really, it's, uh, you know, the season just gets over and, uh, and now the phone, you know, it, it rang all day yesterday. It'll ring all day today, and it'll slow down a little bit during Thanksgiving. And uh, and then uh, come Monday next week, when we get back from Thanksgiving, I think there's about eight Division One coaches landing in here to visit our guys that week. You know, so it's uh, uh, it's uh, it's a uh, you know these guys get a lot of attention, and uh, and uh, and and it is a lot of fun to watch them go on and sign and. Uh, you know, it's so much fun. You know, all my whole staff all played for me as well, and they've gotten their degrees, and they're all paid for. And it's just, you know, no student loans and whatever. I mean, it's just, it's a blast. It really is. Dang. I, I love going to work every day. Well, with this championship, you'll be looking to win another one next year. What do you have back and ready to go for next year, Coach? Well, like I say, it was 18 freshmen, you know, and our whole back line, basically. I mean, we'd lose a left back, but we had one that played equal time back there with him that, I mean, you know, we, we we just have a lot of parts coming back. Obviously, we lose some quality, high-quality sophomores and some impact guys, but it's only a class of uh, eight guys that we're signing out, basically. And so the whole, uh, you know, there's there's parts in every position at this point returning, so you're, you're really not looking for a lot right now. So, uh, you know, now it's just holding it together and having a great spring and, and, uh, and just continuing to try to make these guys better. Now, you know this might also mean another NSCAA Coach of the Year award. That means we might need to see you in L.A. Are you okay with that? Yeah, I would, I would be very okay. My assistants are really wanting to go to Los Angeles this year. They've told me that multiple times. They were hoping we go to L.A. So, uh, yeah, I would. Uh, we, 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 we'll be there. All right, Steve, listen, we say goodbye to you, but we also want you to be the first one to say congrats to John Ruzan. This won't be easy because Paradise Valley Community College beat Tyler on the women's side. But can you say hello, John, and welcome him to the NSCA College Soccer Podcast? I can. Uh, hello, John. Welcome to the NSCA Soccer Podcast, and congrats on your national championship uh, this past weekend. All right, there you have it. Steve Clemens saying congratulations to John Ruzan, who won the NJCAA D1 women's title with Paradise Valley Community College over Tyler Junior College. And, John, now you can also congratulate Steve. Yeah, well, much congratulations to Steve and his uh, Tyler men's program. Always a powerhouse. And, 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 and uh, you know, we, we're, we're fortunate to have prevented a sweep and, you know, Congrats to Corey Rose and his Tyler women. They were they were fantastic as well. Well, you beat the Tyler women three to one in the championship game to push your record to twenty five zero and one. What a season, coach! As you are a national champion. Wow, it's breathtaking. And uh, for me and my team, we're all, we're all just kind of uh, letting it sink in right now. A little weary from uh, from a week of it, but uh, it's been uh, it's been an incredible experience. Your first title, but the third for the program, right? Pretty successful program here in the last several years. Yeah, all credit to case to my predecessor Casey Bingham, who you know won two titles in 2010 and 2012. She she really laid the groundwork and, and, and developed the culture for the for the program, and 
uh, tried my hardest to build upon it. Well, one of the things you told us when we interviewed you earlier in the season is you got a little bit of motivation from the NSCAA rankings that <laughs> perhaps sparked the team. Tell us about that, Coach. Be honest. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, to be honest, you know, the NJCAA poll came out, and we hit number one after Eastern Florida had uh, had lost a few games. And my goodness, what 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 uh, what a tough season those those um, those players have had. All credit to them for for being so resilient, but. But we looked at the, at the NSCAA poll, and uh, and we were uh, you know tied for number one with Butler, who had had two losses. And we looked at that, and then you know, I smirked, and my team sneered, and uh, <laughs> just went back to winning, um, well, and uh, tried to prove everyone wrong. Well, you did tell me though that you felt like you might have been the most underrated number one seed to ever come into this. Yet you come out with the championship. What did you mean by that, Coach? I think you know, there, there, being that we're isolated in our conference in our region. Um, you know, I think that there's a, you know, there, there's a, uh, I don't know, a, a feeling that that we, you know, we, we may not deserve uh, the plaudits that we get, and so there's always that that um, that struggle for uh, to, for to, to for legitimacy and to, to earn that respect of, of uh, uh, all the other teams. And it's not, at the end, uh, I'm proud of what we've achieved. Um, our conference uh, and our region uh, is what makes us better. Um, that is that is the reason we are able to succeed. Um, we do not have the resources or the, uh, the scholarships or abilities of our, of our of our of the other powerhouses, but we make make up for it by coalescing a really strong unit through a, a very tough conference. As written up on your website after winning the championship, Paradise Valley Community College head coach John Ruzan stood away from his team, celebrating hands on his head, and just took a moment. Roseanne just witnessed his team finish an incredible season with a 3-1 victory over Tyler Junior College to clinch the NJCA Division I Women's Soccer National Championship title and wanted to just take a moment and let it all soak in. Why'd you do that, Coach? Well, it's very emotional. You know, uh, I mean, I do this uh, unlike most coaches. I'm I'm a part-time coach. Um, I have a day job. And so this is about passion. Uh, it was just pouring a whole lot of heart, soul, and energy into it, and trying to match the, the passion of my players. And so it was, uh, um, it was a great moment of vindication. All right, finally, now that it's over, how will you celebrate? How have you been celebrating, Coach? Oh gosh, <laughs> mostly we're just resting right now. Um, but um, you know, we've got uh, you know we, we had a jokingly a, referred to as a little victory tour. We'll be at a, a board meeting. And, Paradise Valley is connected to all the other Maricopa County community college schools, so we'll, we'll be at a board meeting. We've got a, a campus event planned, and then uh, you know a team banquet um, and uh, all that while the girls girls try to get through finals. So uh, you know it's um, um, uh, we're going to celebrate. I, I think uh, you know picking out rings is, is is one of the things that the girls are most excited about. Well, you deserve it. You also might need a place for some more hardware as well. I wouldn't be surprised if you're in L.A. walking up on the stage on that Friday night for the Coach of the Year as well. John, what a job you did. Congratulations on all your success, and good luck the rest of the way. Keep it going, okay? Thank you, Dean. Much appreciated. The 2017 NSCAA Convention will be unlike any before. Taking over the downtown Los Angeles Convention Center January 11th through 15th. Network with over 11,000 peers at one of the education sessions, the extensive exhibit hall, or one of many social functions, including the college coaches reception and the All-American Luncheon. With more space and unique experiences, you won't want to miss out on the largest gathering of soccer coaches and administrators in the world. Register today at NSCAA.com. 
Time now to talk D2 and the Final Four. The D2 Women's Final Four will take place December 1 and 3 at the Swope Soccer Village in Kansas City, Missouri, with Columbus State led by Jay Entlake and Grand Valley State led by Jeff Hostler squaring off in one semifinal, and Western Washington led by Travis Cannell facing Kutztown from Pennsylvania in the other semifinal. Proud to say we have talked to three of the Final Four coaches for D2 Women, and next week we will make it four for four when we track down Kutztown coach Eric Burstein. The Final Four for the men is also in Swope City, Kansas, December 1 and 3, featuring matchups of Charleston, West Virginia, led by Chris Grassy, and Rockers, led by Tony Toko. Yes, we had both of their coaches on the program already. And in the other semifinal, it's Wingate and Gary Hamill. He was on weeks ago. And UC San Diego, whose coach is John Pascal. And guess what? He joins us now, making us 4 for 4 on the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast even before the Final Four starts next weekend at the D2 level. John, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. John, now in your ninth season as head coach of UC San Diego, we're going to get to your career, but this is where you've always wanted to be, right, Coach? No question. You know, we used to uh, we used to come out to Nomads to recruit all the time, which was held on the campus at UCSD. I fell in love with it and knew when the job opened that was the that was the job for me. So I went after it pretty aggressively. I was fortunate enough to get it, and uh, here we are, you know, nine years into it, and uh, finally getting to kind of the pinnacle of D two soccer. Well, whether you like it or not, you will be forever tied to my longtime broadcast partner as part of the Fox Soccer Game of the Week for the NSCA. Talking about Keith Tabatsnik, you're tied in two ways. One, you played at his alma mater, American, but then you also joined him on his coaching staff. In fact, Keith Tabatsnik telling me that he called Penn's head coach Rudy Filler asking for permission, got the okay, and you joined him at Georgetown. Talk about what Keith Tabatsnik has meant to you. Yeah, Keith has been a great mentor of mine for a long time now. You know, I spent five years with him. And, uh, you know, looking back, I've been really, really fortunate to not only coach at some great schools, but play and coach under some great coaches. And Keith was certainly one of them. Uh, Keith was, you know, he was the second school that I coached at. And he really put a lot of uh, effort and stake into my development as a coach. You know, he uh, he had coached Rudy Fuller at Penn before he was the head coach for Rudy at Penn, Rudy was his assistant, and you know he was able to help Rudy move on and become a head coach and a successful one at that. And uh, you know when we met and talked about the position, one of the things that really made me want to work for him was his goal was to get me ready to, to take that next step and become a head coach. And and I give him a lot of credit. I mean, he really let me do a lot of things. Uh, you know, as the assistant in terms of recruiting and training and, uh, you know, really, really get my hands around the program. And there, I'm sure there were a lot of things that he probably would have done a little differently himself, but he was, you know, he had the patience to uh, guide me through it. And, uh, and I look back, I just can't thank him enough for kind of trusting me and, and taking the time to help me develop. And uh, so I certainly felt ready, you know, to take over a program after my time with him. Well, Keith said he's actually in Scotland right now, but he was kind enough to text me. He said when the AD at UCSD called him about you as a reference, he asked if there was any negative, and he said jokingly, yes, that ever since you came to Georgetown, he wasn't able to recruit in San Diego because you know it so well. But then he went on to say in the most endearing fashion, he said that's John's dream job, and while you may have some more experience, bigger name finals at the time, although not anymore, UCSD will be just a stop for them. For you, it'll be a career. Did he hit that spot on? 
Yeah, there's uh, you know, there's no place I'd rather be. You know, my wife and I are really happy here in San Diego. You know, the school's located in La Jolla. Uh, it doesn't get much better than that. Our facilities are great and it gives me an opportunity to uh, to coach some fantastic kids. And you know, not not really knowing it at the time, but the Georgetown job was so similar to UCSD. You know, Keith. You know, when we were there, we had two and a half scholarships trying to compete in the Big East. You know, throw on the academic standards at Georgetown. Uh, that was a tall challenge, you know, and, uh, and UCSD is pretty similar. You know, we have uh, less than, right now we have less than one athletic scholarship. We have extremely high academic standards, and, and we play in arguably the toughest D2 conference in the country. Figuring out ways to be successful uh, at Georgetown really uh, had helped me kind of get the program going here. Well, what's in the Kool-Aid this year, though? You've had three years where you won 10 games, but you're 19-2-2, and Coach, and here you are in the Final Four. What in the world's going on in San Diego? Yeah, it's been a great year. You know, we, we just have an experienced group. The group of seniors that we have this year, they, they were all freshmen in 2013, where we made a run in the NCAA tournament led by a senior group then. And those, those seniors really showed our freshmen, I think, how to just approach every day at the program. And those guys have kind of taken it to a whole new level. And, um, you know, we were able to get some wins early, come from behind, win in overtime. And that just gave these guys some confidence uh, and it just propelled the season. And, uh, you know, the chemistry of the group is, is fantastic. And, and honestly, it's been pretty impressive to watch them just get after it every single day and, uh, and and really try to use every opportunity to get better. And you know, in the CCA, you know, if you can if you can come out of on top of the CCA, you have a you have a chance to do some great things nationally. You know, the the conference is so strong, and uh, it's really prepared us for this point. I look at the makeup of your team though, and it's incredible because. Your leading score has 19 points. You've had 13 different players score a goal. So this is a true collaborative team effort. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's the thing. We are who we are. We're a, we're a low scholarship, high academic school. So you have to figure out you know, how you're going to do it. And uh, it's taken us you know, a little bit. It took us a few years to realize that we really need to play to the strengths of the UCSD kid. You know, who, who are the types of guys that we get at UCSD that can be successful at UCSD? And, you know, it's, a, it's an honest, hardworking, reliable guy that can really buy into this team concept. And, uh, and I think it reflects in kind of the stats. And we pride ourselves on being very deep. Um, we're able to to sub some guys in and out, and and really not, the level doesn't dip at all. And you know we have some guys that are having a tough time even getting on the field that uh, that I think would be playing at a lot of other programs. And and their attitudes are fantastic. You would never know. You'd think they were they were guys that were playing every minute. And uh, they've just the team has just bought into this culture. And uh, they understand that, you know, they're responsible for the culture of the program. And that culture ultimately is really what develops your team. It's not necessarily your drills or your tactics, but it's just the, the group's mentality. And, uh, and it's really kind of taken off. Well, Coach, now you definitely got to buckle up the work boots, though. Wingate, Gary yeah. Hamill, they've been atop this charts all season long. Yeah, it's going to be a great opponent. You know, they, uh, they've had a really strong season all year. We're not going to do a whole lot different, to be honest with you. You know, it's uh, you get to this point and, and being who you are, you don't want to change. And, you know, we're just going to try to make sure the game uh, goes in a way that, that suits our strengths and uh, minimizes theirs and try to attack their weakness. Coach, focusing also on your journey to get here, 
when you made the decision to play college soccer, what made you pick American? Well, I grew up in in, uh, in New Jersey, uh, and I played uh, for Miller Bellari in high school. And then uh, coming out, Bob Jenkins, who is a Pingree alumni, played for Miller, also was the head coach at American University. His assistant was Jim Barlow, who I'd known at that point. And having the opportunity to play for those two guys uh, was, you know, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, uh, you're not going to find two better guys or better coaches, uh, in, you know, in the game. And <laughs> playing there was an unbelievable experience to play with those guys and, uh, and, and you know, the environment they created. It's one of those things that I certainly didn't want to give up and knew that I always wanted to coach. Um, so they really kind of kick-started, kick-started the career. And, and, and again, they, a lot of what, what I've tried to bring to UCSD is really kind of started by them. Okay, after Georgetown, you went to Stanford, and it didn't take you very long to discover UCSD. Talk about when you discovered it and how you knew this was where you wanted to be someday. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was a recruiting trip I took uh, to go watch the Nomads Tournament, which is held at UCSD campus. And, uh, you know, that was before the days of Google Maps, stuff like that. And uh, I went to go get lunch, not really knowing where I was going, and made a random right turn down La Jolla Shores Drive, which wraps you down the side of a mountain and gives you just, you know, breathtaking ocean views. You know, from a, from a guy from New Jersey, that, uh, that made an impression on me. I knew that's where I wanted to be. And uh, so when that job opened up at Stanford, I went after it pretty aggressively. And, uh, you know, uh, Derek Armstrong, who had spent, I think, 27 years at UCSD, did a lot of great things, won a couple national championships. Uh, when, when he stepped down, I think you know the athletic director had a profile in mind. That was a young guy that could take a seat in the program that came from a higher academic school with a big name. And, you know, not, not really by design, I ended up with UPenn, Georgetown, and Stanford on my resume. I wouldn't have been able to get into any of those schools. But, uh, you know, I think I became a really good fit for UCSD, and uh, Stanford, being the great school it is, carries a lot of weight out here on the West Coast, and nationally, really, especially on the West Coast. But, uh, you know, I think Earl and I hit it off right away, and uh, you know, the rest is history. If you listen to our podcast at all, you know we're all about the name drop, and we're also all about the history of the NSCA. And here you go, you say Miller Bellari. I mean, that guy is a legend with the NSCA. He bleeds the NSCAA. So I got to believe he also has led you down the path of the NSCAA. Tell me he has, and tell me what it's meant to you to be a part of the NSCAA. Yeah, Miller, uh, you know, he's a soccer icon. Uh he he has been doing it for fifty plus years, and uh, he like Keith, you know, they really take pride in their alumni and uh, and and keeping tabs on. Them. And you know, as I got into coaching, uh, you know, there was not you know hard to find a better uh, resource and mentor to him. And one of the biggest things that he has been an advocate is just his coaching education. And uh, he's drilled that into my head and um, trying to make sure that uh, I use every opportunity I can to learn and to grow and to get better as a coach. And, and he's still playing. I, mean, I literally just talked to him yesterday, and, uh, you know, he was pushing me to, to do a couple things to, to, see, a, to see a few things and, and continue to grow and get better, and there's always opportunities to learn. And, uh, you know, I think he, he's such a great advocate for the NSCA. It's, uh, it's been it's been made a big impact on my career. 
Finally, you're growing as a coach. You're also growing as a father. You got two little ones, I think, under three. Talk about what that's been like, Coach. Oh man, that's uh, that's been an adjustment, you know, in, in, in doing this thing. And uh, yeah, we have a three-year-old and a one-year-old daughter. They are uh, they're amazing, but they keep you busy. And uh, it's certainly made it a little more challenging to do some of the uh, to do some of the aspects of the program to get out and recruit and and be away from home. And, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have a pretty great assistant and a, you know, a team assistant that's really been able to kind of pick up the slack for me the more I've been, been you know, at home with the family. But it really, it really changes your life. It changes uh, your perspective on things. You certainly wouldn't have it any other way. And it's really been a great, uh, fun run this season. They've been in the stands at the games, uh, you know, drove up to Turlock for the conference championship and, uh, it's been really special to have them there on the sidelines and a part of it. Awesome. John Pascal, the head coach of UC San Diego. He's got his men's team in the Final Four taking place December 1 and 3 at Swope Soccer Village in Kansas City. Thanks for being with us on the NSCA College Soccer Podcast, and good luck in the Final Four, Coach. Thanks, Dean. Appreciate it. By being a member of the NSCAA, you are a part of the world's largest network of soccer coaches. Here, you can find like-minded people passionate about bettering themselves to help better their players and ultimately to better the game. All right, moving along to D3 soccer. The final four is set for both the women and the men. On the men's side, what a tournament it has been. Tons of upsets as well. Brandeis will take on Calvin. Of course, we had Ryan Souders on the program already. And in the other bracket, it's Tufts taking on St. Thomas of Minnesota. And their head coach is John Lowry, leading St. Thomas in Minnesota. St. Paul, in fact. And John, pleasure to have you on the College Soccer Podcast. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Well, John, I'm always keen to have Ohio State Buckeyes on. You actually played at Ohio State, right? I did, yeah. Late 90s, played for uh, Gary Avedeke in my first year, and then I played for John Bloom for uh, the remaining two years. Of course, Gary Avedikin was honored last year as part of the NSCAA. He earned that Distinguished Honor Award, so those ties are amazing. And John Bloom do a lot of his games as well. And we were just talking before we got on in the air. You're actually, you're focused, man, because there was a reunion with the Ohio State Buckeyes geared around the Ohio State-Michigan game football game, and you said no. Yeah, the, the guys uh, the guys I played with and my roommates are all going back down for the for the big game on Saturday. I had plans to go and fortunately those plans have uh, gone awry because we're still we're still dancing. You are dancing and actually you get a week off as well, which is interesting. Talk about this run leading up to Tufts, pretty amazing season, coach. Yeah, it's been great and it's it's been a it's been a build. I mean, we've we got here uh, this is our fifth season, my fifth season at St. Thomas. We, we knew the potential of what we could do there. We understood the environment and have really worked hard to put something together that can compete in our conference, compete in our region, and, and then give us an opportunity to win the whole thing nationally. And, and fortunately, we're, we're in that position now, and uh, it, it's been a great process, and we're really fortunate for where we are. So tell us about your team. What kind of soccer are you playing out there, John? Well, we, we want to play. I mean, we're I think we're a tournament-built team, and I've learned a lot from a lot of great coaches over over the years. To win the tournament, I think you gotta you got to fight to play, and I think there's there's an incredible level of intensity. There's an incredible level of uh, just, you know, teams want to win, and I think what we've done well is we've found moments to play. Um, we've attacked well. We've defended very well, um, but we've also matched the, the level of intensity that teams are bringing to the field. So we when it's when it, when it's time to play, it's time to play. When it's time to fight, it's time to fight. And I think we've managed both of those really well, and it's gotten us to where we are. 
All right, I love your journey. As we just told everybody, you played at Ohio State, played a little bit professionally, but then you went to work, and you worked under some of the most respected coaches in the business, three coaches that are also respected deeply by the NSCAA. You had Sam at UMass Amherst, John Bloom at Ohio State, and Jay Vitovich at Wake Forest. Talk about what those three men meant to you. They meant everything. I mean, I think I, I knew early on that I wanted to coach. You know, I used to stop by Coach Bloom's office when he first got there, was in Ohio Stadium, and I, and I would just stop by during the day, you know, and he's probably wondering why. But I just wanted to, I wanted to learn. I wanted to see what it was to be a college soccer coach. I, I just had a internal feeling that that's what I wanted to do. And, and the learning process continued after I played for a couple of years after college. I knew I'd probably be best served as a coach and not a goalkeeper. You know, I got the opportunity to go out to UMass Amherst as a grad assistant. I had never met Sam Cole, but the second I talked to him, uh, I knew I wanted to work for him, and it was incredibly rewarding. I learned so much about uh, the internal operations of a college soccer program, and uh, it was an underfunded, just you know, all hands on deck program. And you know, I just did everything. I mean, we we did everything from lining the fields to pumping up balls, and the only thing we didn't do, I think, was cut the grass. You know, so it was. It was a great start, and it gave me a beginning of understanding of what it takes to be a college soccer coach, how to build a program. Moved on to Ohio State with Coach Bloom, and, and uh, it was such it was so rewarding. I'm, I'm a Buckeye. I'll always be a Buckeye, so it was so fun to work there and kind of be on the other side uh, to see what, it, what, it, what was happening, and Frank Seth was there and just learned a lot from those guys. And then really had a unique opportunity at Wake Forest in 2006, 7, 8 to work for Jay, and Jay was uh, just a – had a profound impact on my level of knowledge of the game and the sophistication of training and the, and the attention to details and to be around that team in 07 that won the national championship and then in 08 to lose in the semifinals but still was just an unbelievable group of guys it was just a it was just a great process of educating myself as a young coach to learn from so many great people wait how surreal was that in 2007 at Wake Med Soccer Park in Cary, North Carolina, and you look across and you're playing the Ohio State Buckeyes where you play. They had an amazing run in 07, winning the Big Ten tournament and going all the way. In fact, I think a Roger Espinosa go put them up one to nothing. That had to have been just a crazy kind of mixed emotion type game, right? It was one of the most unique experiences I'll ever just go through. I mean, I, I think leaving Ohio State in 2006 was it was one of the biggest decisions I've ever made professionally, and it was it was hard. I mean, I <laughs> he was, the work I put in to get Roger Espinosa with our staff. We all put a lot of work in, but the work I put in with Roger uh, to get him to Ohio State, and then and then to kind of take a leap of faith and go to Wake Forest and and just expand my horizons and say, you know what, I want I want to see how it's done somewhere else. I want to continue to learn, and then. To, to, to bring it full circle and we get in the tournament. And I remember, you know, we would text back and forth. Uh, I would text back and forth with John and Frank at Ohio State. And, you know, we would kind of joke about, hey, we won, you won, and we'll see you in the national championship. And then, sure enough, as the, as the games kept going, we, we kept winning and they kept winning. And we both showed up on a Sunday at Wake Med Soccer Park, and, and I kind of had to rub my eyes. I didn't believe that we were really playing Ohio State in the national championship. But, uh, stayed focused on the job and was was happy to help Wake Forest uh, win a national championship and also just really happy for John and the program he's built for them to, to be on that platform. 
Well, I just got chills as you broke that down because that was, I mean, that was the first year of the Big Ten Network as well, fully invested, and to see that run, to now know your tie-in as well. And now I've been the voice of the Carolina Railhawks for 10 years, so you've got Austin Deleuze and Zach Shalosky yep. and Akira Fitzgerald. I mean, I know Akira wasn't playing at the time, but we've got, uh, we call it Wake Forest Light with the Railhawks. So those, those were some quality players, John, on that Wake Forest team. Well, I, I, you know, people always say how much did you learn from Jay, and I, I, I can't, I can't say how much I learned because it was so much. But I also learned so much from the players. I mean, that was, that was a really unique group of, of players, and and the what they brought to the program, their professionalism. You know, the Sam Cronin, Austin Deleuzes, the Marcus Tracys, the Brian Edwards. I mean, the list goes on. And you know, I think what people talk about a lot is how talented that team was. But what I took away was how strong the culture was and, and just how good of people they were. And, and they were really extremely professional on and off the field. And it was, it was such a special group of players. And I, was, I really feel privileged to be a part of it. Okay, so how did, did it happen, St. Thomas? I think you're from Minnesota as well, if I got that right. I mean, how did that all happen? Love to know the story. There's a personal side to it. I mean, I think I'm from Minnesota. Minnesota's unique. I think there's, you know, everyone talks about how cold Minnesota is. But if you're from here, there's, there's something here that, that – people appreciate and and I knew that with my wife at the time we didn't have any kids but I knew we wanted to eventually come back here and she has a great family and uh, unfortunately my mom passed away and then my dad was up here and, and it was a personal thing where we kind of looked at each other and said you know what let's get back to Minnesota let's put some roots down and let's let's continue our careers and um, I actually went to Hamlin University from Wake Forest and my first year there was 09 and it was it was a drastic shift you know I didn't I didn't know anything about D3 soccer to be honest I didn't play it I didn't watch much of it I knew a couple of distinguished coaches like Jay Martin and some others but I, I, I really didn't know it and decided to make a personal decision for the future that I think we can go there and I think we can put some roots down and just started the process of, uh, you know, finding a little bit of balance in life, continuing to do what I love, and, and finding a place where we can grow a family, and that was Minnesota. Okay, so then when did St. Thomas call? St. Thomas, I was at Hamlin for three, four years. Uh, the St. Thomas job was something I always had my eye on. I'm not going to lie about that. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an unbelievable university. It's got a, we have a great campus. We have a great administration. We have great students. It's a private Catholic school of about 6,000 undergrads. And it also has an athletic department that's unique in Division Three, where it is firmly committed to the Division Three values. But the thing I like is, and the thing I liked from afar, was that it wants to win. You know, and I wanted to be at a place where the ceiling was as high as it could be. I wanted to be at a place where my where my athletic director would look at me and say, "We want to win a national championship." And that was the environment that I wanted to be in. So St. Thomas came uh, open five years ago. It was a it was a bit of it was another leap of faith because at the time it was part time. So I I left my full time job at Hamlin. Took, took a part-time job at St. Thomas. Since, since I took that job, it's gone full-time. But I, I just believe in what we do, what, what is possible at St. Thomas, and I believe in the university and, and complement that with a great soccer program. Finally, Coach, you're just two wins away from that coveted national championship that you just spoke of. If St. Thomas does these two things, they'll win it. What are they? If we continue to get better, that's the first thing. And, and the second thing would be if we continue to be balanced in how we play. We've been very balanced defensively. We haven't given up many goals. We have a very diverse attack. You know, our, our leading scorers are all on five, six, seven goals. And honestly, we're it's a boring answer, but we're looking at this game in the semifinals and we're not we're not talking about it being a national semifinal. We're talking about it being an opportunity to get better. And and I think that's our focus. Wow, what a pleasure, man. Love the tie in to Wake Forest and Ohio State and now you're back home in Minnesota. John Lowry, pleasure to have you on the NSC 
NCAA College Soccer Podcast. Good luck in the D3 Final Four. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you, John. When we come back, we'll wrap things up with a quick look at the NAIA. What a show it's been. Thanks for being with us here on the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast. The 2017 NSCAA convention will be unlike any before. Taking over the downtown Los Angeles Convention Center January 11th through 15th. Network with over 11,000 peers at one of the education sessions, the extensive exhibit hall, or one of many social functions, including the college coaches reception and the All-American Luncheon. Talking about an exciting time of year for NAIA Women's Soccer. Their national championship gets underway November 28th through December 3rd at the Orange Beach Sportsplex in Alabama. Spring Arbor returns to Orange Beach to defend its title after defeating Rochester, Michigan 5-0. Two unseeded teams are on their way to the final site. Northwest from Washington and Ottawa from Kansas. The Southern States Athletic Conference has the most teams represented at the National Championship final site with three, Martin Methodist, Mobile, and William Carey. There are five teams that advance to the final site who have won a championship title. Lindsey Wilson four times, Martin Methodist twice, Mobile one, Spring Arbor, and Westmont have also done it. Westmont doing it five times. There are 11 teams from the 2015 NAIA Women's Soccer National Championship final site field returning to Orange Beach this year. The last time a team won back-to-back championships was former NAIA member Lee of Tennessee. They won four titles in a row from 2008 to 2011. Defending national champion Spring Arbor of Michigan continues to ride a 39-match unbeaten streak as it squares off against Cumberland on Monday, November 28th. The Cougars sit in third all-time behind Lynn with 42 and Mobile with 48. That's a look at women's soccer NAIA. Let's move to the men's side. Eight of the top nine seeds all picked up opening round victories. Number five, Kaiser, your host, received an opening round bye, including last season's national championship game participants, number two, Ryle Grant, and number eight, Mid-American Nazarene. The NAIA's longest winning streak, however, was snapped as number 12, Campbellsville from Kentucky, lost for the first time in 36 matches, 2-1 to one to Grandview. Ryle Grant, the reigning national champs, improved to a perfect 9-0-0 all-time in opening round matches after posting a 5-1 win over St. Thomas of Florida. Since the start of the opening round four, Format, the host institutions hold an 89-31 and 6 record. Three conferences had two teams pick up victories on Saturday to advance to the final site. Heart of America Athletic Conference, Wolverine Hoosier Athletic Conference, and River States Conference. The Sun Conference will also have two representatives as Thomas from Georgia joins host Kaiser at the Seacrest Soccer Complex. Be sure to check out NAIA for all the latest scores and updates on all of the national championship action. Need more NAIA soccer news? Check us out on social media and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram using the hashtag NAIA Soccer. That concludes our NAIA Soccer News. And guess what? That concludes our longest ever show. Thanks for being with us as part of the NSCAA College Soccer Podcast. I want to thank all of our guests Steve Goff from the Washington Post, Craig Stewart, the head coach of the Providence Friars who knocked off Maryland last week, NSCAA Director of College Programs, Rob Kehoe. On the women's side, from Auburn Division I, Karen Hoppe, and from Santa Clara, Jerry Smith, our NJCAA Division. Division one champions on the men from Tyler Steve Clemens on the women from Paradise Valley John Ruzan from the D2 world UC San Diego head coach John Pascal and in the D3 world John Lowry the head coach of St. Thomas in Minnesota both those coaches are in the final four in their respective divisions what a show thank you so much for being with us for the NSCAA I'm Dean Linky wishing each and every one of you a happy Thanksgiving I'm certainly thankful for college soccer 
When you join the National Soccer Coaches Association of America, you join a community who live and breathe the beautiful game just like you do. You join a network of individuals who share many of the same issues, concerns, and questions as you. The NSCAA is dedicated to serving coaches at every level of the game in a number of ways through advocacy, education, and service. Be a part of the coaching community. Learn more and join at NSCAA.com. 